Hi, I'm George Boracchi, and this is Cityscape. You can find a map of almost anything in New York City, where the best restaurants are, famous movie locations, but our guest on this week's show has created a map to showcase an underrepresented aspect of the city's history and culture. Gwen Shockey is a New York City-based artist whose work has been exhibited in a variety of venues, including the Leslie Lohman Museum in Manhattan. Her new project, however, is an online map called the Addresses Project. It's designed to show how sacred safe spaces are for lesbian and queer people. Gwen, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, George. So for those not familiar with you as an artist, how would you describe your work? Um, I'm trained as a printmaker. I got my MFA at Pratt Institute in 2017. Um, And I'm kind of all over the map in terms of mediums. I've dappled in ceramics and um, my biggest love, I guess, is work on paper. Uh, and I've explored a lot of queer content, queer theory, and lesbian identity and community and memory through my work. Where does that interest come from? Um, my own identity. I came out as a lesbian in undergrad, I guess, um, and really kind of came out through my art practice. I had some wonderful mentors in undergraduate school who helped me really find myself and my voice through uh, examples of other queer artists. And then I became familiar with the Leslie Lohman Museum in Manhattan. Uh, in Soho, they're actually the only accredited uh, gay, lesbian, and queer museum in the world. And I found a community there after undergrad. It's an amazing museum. So how would you say your sexual identity is reflected in your art? Mm, good question. Um, probably in the sense that... Uh, any any art practice, I would say, is a, a very intimate conversation with yourself. Um, and I would say that, I guess, throughout my life, I've been having these conversations with my work uh, that reflect myself in a way that is sometimes kind of mundane and sometimes really startling and wonderful and exploratory. Um, so I guess, in you know, in my grappling with my own identity and in my search for community as a queer person, um, finding other artists who reflected kind of a world, a queer world that I had been always searching for as a kid was revolutionary for me. Um, And, you know, seeing lesbian artists photographing each other, painting each other, drawing each other, uh, allowed me to kind of imagine a world that I could live in as a queer person and a world that is beautiful and enriching and powerful. So who would you say are among your role models? Oh, Oh, I have so many role models. I guess one of the first lesbian artists I really loved um, was Harmony Hammond, and another would be Catherine Opie. I, you know, Catherine Opie is a photographer um, who photographed her community in San Francisco and L.A., her leather community, her lesbian community, her queer community, um, through a kind of a very intimate but also very political lens, uh, and I always kind of strived for that combination in my work. Oh, other people, uh, Cecilia Brooke, who did a project in the on the West Coast called The Boy Mechanic, um, which is kind of, I'm not going to say I modeled my addresses project after that, but it was a huge influence for me. She spent a lot of time um, tracking down lesbian bars on the West Coast and talking to bar owners. Uh, I, I believe this work was from the 80s and 90s. And I got the chance to meet her last year, which was thrilling. Uh, And she's just wonderful, too. (laughs) So what inspired you to map out sites of lesbian bars here in New York City? 
Mm. I started uh, started this project in graduate school. Um, I was already making work about intimate queer lesbian spaces um, just because I spent probably too much time in lesbian bars in my 20s in Cubbyhole and Henrietta and going to parties. Um, so I was doing a, pr- a couple of print series uh, on lesbian bar bathrooms. And then the Pulse Pulse shootings happened in 2016. In Orlando. In Orlando, Florida. Yeah. And I was just stunned, um, as so many other people were in our community, in the queer community, um, that a space that so, feels so safe and is so intimate and protected could be invaded like it was by um, someone with such deep homophobia. Uh, and I was infuriated by it and felt so protective and scared of the spaces I love in New York. Um, that something, not that something like that would happen, but just how kind of vulnerable they felt to me that summer. So I, at that same time, I was volunteering for an organization called Identity House, which is a really wonderful peer-run donation-based mental health support organization for the queer community, or the LG, rather the LGBTQIA community. Uh, and they run a walk-in center where anyone can come to talk uh, and to get a therapy referral. And they run support groups for all types of people dealing with identity. So I was having all these conversations around that time about coming out and about safe space. And I started interviewing my friends about how they came out and the first spaces they went to that made them realize they could have a really productive, crazy, unique life as a queer person. And I ended up just collecting like so many addresses of lesbian bars and queer bars that I'd never heard of before. So that's kind of how it started. Can you talk more about the idea of a lesbian bar, a gay bar, as a safe space? Because this is something that perhaps someone in the heterosexual community can't identify with. If they don't see their bar, their local hangout, as a safe space, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something that's so unique for the LGBTQ IA community in the sense that over the decades and the changing political social climates, queer people have been incredibly ostracized and um, subjugated in society, in American society and all over the world. They have been kicked out of their homes for their identity and their and their love and their expressions of love. They've been they've lost jobs. You know, we've been asked to leave our churches and our synagogues and our other places of worship for who we were and are. And the bar space, because of its, I guess, kind of underground, secretive almost um, feel, became a church for for us. Uh, it was a place where you could go. And it's obviously it's changed so much over the decades, but it was a place where you could go and um, gaze at other people with desire and have that gaze met. And that is not something that you that I always feel safe doing, even now in a quote-unquote heterosexual bar or just your run-of-the-mill bar. Um, to be able to actively pursue love and sex and friendship with people who really understand your story and your struggle and um, your... having to maneuver through the hetero landscape um, as someone who just really does not fit into it and doesn't want to fit into it. Um, For that reason, 
bars are and were a mecca. So what does the map look like online? Um, It looks like it's uh, designed by a wonderful uh, queer friend of mine named Zach Green. Um, And it's all a black background with the boroughs of New York and Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx outlined in white with little pink dots where a site would, you know, would have been um, that was a lesbian bar or a queer bar or club or dance hall or whatever. And if you click on the dot, it pulls up an image that I took of the location as it appears now, as affected by time and gentrification and and such. And then it has a bit of history that I've gathered from basically any source available that I could find, uh, giving us clues of to what that bar or club might have been like when it was open. Where did you find those clues outside of the interviews? Oh, all over the place. I... Uh, the Village Voice, um, Police Records, Go Magazine, um, people's random journals in the Her Story Archive. As you mentioned, the oral history uh, interviews I've been doing. Um, a friend of mine, also named Gwen, funnily enough, Gwendolyn Stigall, recently finished her thesis at Columbia University. She's a landmark preservationist on some of these sites and also has done wonderful research. So I've quoted her a bit because she's found things that I haven't been able to find. Yeah. And also the Business Bureau in terms of like finding blueprints of the buildings and bits of information about the, you know, licensing of everything. How would you say the history of lesbian bars in New York City differs from the history of bars for gay men? Hmm. That's a good question. I think the root of it all is very similar, but then you, you know, having to do with mafia control and just entrenched hatred for homosexual people. But then you throw on top of that the women's rights movement and the fact that throughout the ages women have been subjugated to an extent by our still strong patriarchy, that it was just very, very hard for women to even conceive of opening up a space on their own and running a space on their own. I believe up until then either, oh, I'm going to get this date wrong, but the late 80s or early 90s, you had to have a cosigner, a male cosigner to even take out a loan. For instance, you know, there there's a bar call or a club, lesbian club called the Sahara, which was one of the first lesbian owned clubs for women which opened in um, the 19, early 1970s and by four lesbian women, um, Leslie Cohen, Michelle Floria, Linda Goldfarb, and Barbara Russo. Uh, and they were just the scrappiest four women I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. Um, they were able to take out loans basically by themselves, and they were, I believe, some of the first women to get liquor licenses in the hmm. state of New York. So, yeah, I mean, it was challenging, challenging to be a woman at that time and challenging to be a lesbian at that time. Also, you know, lesbians were very much ostracized from the women's rights movement in a lot of ways uh, and had to fight to march and to protest and to gather with straight women um, in the women's rights movement. So what did you hear from these women that you interviewed? What are the stories that stick out most? Oh, so many amazing stories. Hmm. Um, I interviewed a wonderful artist named Michaela Griffo, who is still uh, an amazing activist. Um, And she moved to New York when she was really young and lived um, with a bunch of kids 
around the Bowery area. And she came of age uh, when bars were still mafia-owned, um, and sh- she was caretaken by a woman named Dee Dee, who ran a mafia-owned kind of call-girl business. And she took Michaela under her wing, um, and Michaela went to the Sea Colony, which was a les- mafia-owned lesbian bar, which is now Art Bar on 8th Avenue in the West Village. And Michaela was a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front, started her activism in the Red Stocking, in Red Stockings meetings. Um, and her first love was a top Fords model um, who was tragically murdered later on. But she became a member of the Lavender Menace and was just active up through the first Gay Pride March uh, and worked with Yoruba Guzman and the Black Panthers and Young Lords in all types of uh, amazing intersectional ways, which just confounds me and really kind of reinforces my belief of how important it is um, for activists to not think, uh, you know, single issue in terms of single issues, um, because, you know, all of these all of these themes intersect in such a crazy way. Um, Yeah. So how did the experience of someone like that compare to the experience of someone younger who Mm -hmm. came of age at a different time? Yeah, another wonderful question. I think the most interesting part of this whole project for me has been to sort of witness the changes in the ways that queer women and lesbians and queer people in general have gathered over the decades and how much of a product one kind of quote unquote movement of bar life or clubbing how much of a result it was from the previous quote unquote movement. So, you know, in in comparison to a bars like Cookies and the Sea Colony and Gianni's, which were really underground and mafia controlled, and in the words of the women I've interviewed, pretty kind of dirty, not so pleasant to be in, but the only options they had um, would be the 90s and early 2000s, directly after the AIDS epidemic, uh, when kind of a desire for beauty and visibility and pride in a different way came to be. Um, And I interviewed two wonderful women, Wanda Acosta and uh, Shari Nash. Shari is a DJ and Wanda a former bar owner and through parties um, over the years, they started a party called Sundays at Cafe Tabak, which was kind of revolutionary in the sense that it was a celebration of beauty and wanting to be seen and wanting to uh, dress up and to explore not only the butch femme dynamic, but glamour in a way like high fashion. Um, and again, this was around the same time Ellen DeGeneres, you know, comes out a little, I guess, a little bit later on, but really like a time of visibility and wanting to be just uh, adoring of each other in a way that was kind of, you know, deserved after years of being stuck underground. <laughs> what are you doing with the oral histories? Oh, that's that's been something I've been debating over. I, you know, I have this collection that just keeps growing and growing and I'm just, you know, so willing to interview anyone who is who is uh will agree to speak to me and to share their story. Um for a while I was thinking of making a book, but I really wanted all the information to be public access in the way that the lesbian her story has all of their materials available to the public. Uh, I've been transcribing all the interviews. 
uh, just because I, I think it's a bit easier, perhaps, to be able to read um, an interview and leave it and come back to it, and also to be able to search it by keyword um, for research purposes. So I've put all the interviews uh, in an archive, which is attached to the map, which is um, addressesproject.com. And you can kind of choose a person's name and then just read their story. And it, there are photographs in the stories that each person has chosen themselves of their life and their activism. And yeah, we'll see what happens. At some point, I, I mean, some of the audio files are in really poor condition because I would have the women I interviewed choose the location that they wanted to talk to me at. Some were their favorite lesbian bar. Some were really noisy cafes. So it's a little hard to decipher. Um, and some of them are really good quality. So, How vibrant is lesbian nightlife now in New York City? Oh, it's it's vibrant. I um, Another kind of realization I've had with, with doing this work is going through this process of fear and kind of almost pre-mourning uh, because so many lesbian bars seem to be closing around the country and around the world. And then also realizing that so many other types of spaces are opening um, because the needs of the community seem to be changing a little bit. Spaces need to be really inclusive now and mindful of all types of gender identity, not just lesbian, not just gay, but trans and non-binary and queer in all the wonderful forms that identity can exist in. Also, uh, kind of thinking about the changing real estate market in New York and how insanely expensive it is to open a space now. So I think it's easier for young people to open parties that are monthly or weekly to have them take place at a bar that already exists. For instance, Pat at Union Pool, which is J.D. Sampson and Amber Valentine's baby, uh, which is a great queer party. Mr. at the Woods in Williamsburg still runs strong on Wednesday nights every week. Uh, and then we have, you know, three of the last quote-unquote lesbian bars in the city, which are Ginger's Bum Bum, well, Boom Boom Bar closed uh, four months ago, which was in Queens, sadly, um, a very well-loved space. And then Henrietta Hudson in the West Village and Cubby Hole, uh, although Cubby Hole really um, identifies as a mixed space and is very welcoming to anyone. So really, though, only three bars specific to the lesbian population here in New York City yeah. open today. Yeah, at least bars that are open more or less seven days a week. Um, but a space, a great space just opened uh, called No Bar at the Standard Hotel. It's not a lesbian bar, but um, it's owned by a queer woman and has drag nights and a lot of events for the community. So new spaces are opening. I think they're just looking different, uh, very different and um, catering, you know, to the ever-changing needs of the queer community. Recently, I interviewed someone around the Stonewall anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising. And this was a gentleman who was there the night of the uprising. And he was lamenting the fact that gay bars in his eyes aren't what they used to be that you have obviously a lot more integration now and you have both heterosexual and homosexual populations mixing. And he was like, no, I miss the days when it was just gay. Did you hear that from people? They missed the days when it was just lesbian women together. We didn't have this integration. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is the question that I always return to. 
regardless of how important it is to have inclusive spaces for people who really need safe space, we can't really have that at all if there are no spaces, you know, if every space is kind of open to heterosexual people or to people who kind of can go anywhere and feel safe. Uh, yeah, it's tricky. Um, there's nothing like the feeling of walking into a bar or a room where you know everyone there has kind of gone through something similar to you and really knows what it feels like to be harassed in public for making out with your, you know, for making out with your girlfriend or holding hands with someone who's, um, you know, the same sex as you or for a non-binary person to be walking, you know, down the streets of New York and to still be getting harassed. I mean, we've made a lot of progress, obviously, I mean, over the years, but it is still it is still so hard to maneuver around our culture as someone who doesn't fit in um, and who doesn't want to fit in. Uh, So, yeah, I I think, I don't know. I mean, I still identify as a lesbian because for me it's political more than anything. Um, Yes, I'm attracted to women and yes, I mostly date women, but I feel that there's still an intrinsic sexism at work in our culture that doesn't want women to have spaces of their own and uh, wants women to still maintain a welcoming, hospitable attitude when, in fact, we have so little space uh, to take up space. And gay men have so many spaces. And, uh, you know, there is still that huge discrepancy. So, yeah, I, I very much value Cubby Hole. I very much value Henrietta Hudson, I think, and Ginger's. I think it's a miracle that those three spaces have been able to stay as they are over the years um, because I think it is important. That being said, I think, you know, party these monthly parties uh, really kind of maintain an attitude of respect. And whoever goes into them, if you maintain respect and you really know what you're going into, Everyone can feel safe. Everyone can have an amazing time. Um, there's a party, uh, for instance, who advertises as uh, their price ticketing system is, I think it's like um, lesbians, trans people, queer people, non-binary people pay like $3 and then gay men pay like $10 and then straight white men um, is like seventy five dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's that like those little kind of humorous ways of indicating that this is a space for people who really need it. And if you don't really need it, why are you here? Getting back to the fiftieth anniversary of the Stonewall uprising for a moment, a lot of that history focused on gay men. And I think you sort of touched on this already, but let me ask you specifically: Why do you think it is that lesbian history, in your opinion, has been short shrifted? Hmm. I guess the same reason why women and femme people are still fighting for visibility and for power, not well, not so much power. Well, yeah, power um, and agency uh, in that we still live in a patriarchy. Uh, at that time, the time of Stonewall, not only were lesbians fighting for rights as lesbians, but they were fighting for white rights as women and uh, lesbian women of color were fighting for rights as lesbian as people of color. They had a lot of issues to tackle. And um, prior to the AIDS epidemic, there were, I think, you know, in the words of women I've interviewed, a lot of rifts between gay men and gay women in the sense that um, 
you know, they more or less socialized in separate spaces and with the exception of the Gay Liberation Front, which was pretty mixed and diverse. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, I believe, uh, were a part, a part of GLF um, protests and, and, you know, organized actions. And the whole, you know, GLF kind of uh, organizing model was around inclusivity for queer people um, and for anyone who was subjected. It wasn't just about gay men and gay women. It was really, like, expansive in its fight in its desire to fight for inclusivity and for freedom and rights. But yeah, I, I think from what I've heard, again, I'm, I'm, I didn't live through this and I'm, I don't know firsthand, but it seems as though when AIDS started happening, uh, gay men and gay women really came together um, under, you know, the crisis of just not being, t- not being tended to by the government and not being heard and not being helped in any way. Uh, so it forced everyone to come together in a way that was so sad, but kind of amazing. You're not native to New York City. You were born across the river in New Jersey. I sure was. What was the first lesbian bar you ever went to? Oh, <laughs> uh, I was lucky enough to study abroad in undergrad in Paris. Um, and the first lesbian bar I ever went to was called Le Troisième Lou, which means the third place. Um, and I'll never forget the first time I walked into that bar. I was so nervous and I was just totally awestruck. I could barely talk to anyone. My French was pretty terrible. Um, but I got a drink and walked around and I was with a couple of friends, um, who weren't gay themselves, but who were sweet enough to bring me there. And there was a foosball table in the back and just beautiful beautiful, um, cultured, interesting looking women of all ages in that space. And I had this like crazy realization that I needed to come out, first of all, and second of all, that I could have this marvelous life as a queer woman. And that that bar is sadly closed now. But I know I'm not quite sure how long it was open, but it was a really, really cool space, really beautiful space. If you could go back in time here in New York City and frequent any of the lesbian bars that have <laughs> since been shuttered, which one would it be? It would be the Sahara. Um, and the reason for that is it just seemed like it did everything um, and that it sparked this beginning of a women-run culture. Um, it wasn't only a club, uh and a dance hall and a bar and um, a music space, but it was an art gallery. Uh, Leslie Cohen, who was one of the four founders of the the club, um, worked, was a kind of heavy hitter in the art world prior to opening the Sahara and had a lot of, you know, artist friends who are famous now um, who hung their work on the walls of the club. Um, It was also uh, an amazing political space. Gloria Steinem spoke there even Jane Fonda made an appearance there, uh, I, I believe, opening in, introducing um, uh, some political rally, which I can't remember what it was at the moment. But it uh, was vibrant. It was frequented by lesbian celebrities, um, big time lesbian musicians. And it was just like it just seemed so fabulous. And I am so sad I never got to go there. <laughs> At the end of the day, Gwen, what are you hoping people take away from this project? Uh, I'm I'm hoping people take away 
from it what I've taken away, which is the importance of intergenerational conversation. Um, it has been just the most uh, educational and inspiring um, journey to talk to so many women who have, you know, who laid the groundwork for me to be able to walk down the street feeling relatively safe as a lesbian. Um, you know, women and lesbians and queer queer people who risked everything, their, including their lives and their, their livelihoods and their homes um, to make the world a safer place for queer people. Uh, and I wouldn't know any of this if I hadn't spoken to so many of these people. Um, and I think, you know, we as a younger generation can learn a lot from these these older uh, women and lesbians and also from talking to younger people um i am i do i am an academic advisor at pratt institute and i learn a lot all the time from my students and my advisees uh, they are so ahead of the curve from me <laughs> uh, so yeah and once again addresses lives where it is addressesproject.com. Um, you can just Google it, and it links to directly to the oral history archive. Gwen Shockey, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>